Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is attorney, author, and military veteran John Waters, who shares the influences of his early life before enlisting in the Marines. We talk also about the themes in his debut novel, River City One, including the dislocation felt by some combat troops returning to civilian lives and their effort to discern meaning. You reach a point where you don't look away from things that are hard. You don't look away from things your friends go through or things that have happened. You don't hide them. You confront them. So I did in this book. Listeners should note that the theme of suicide is discussed in the show. If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text to 988 or online at 988lifeline.org. John Waters graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Marine Corps. For six years, he served as a scout sniper platoon commander and ground intelligence officer completing deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Horn of Africa. After leaving the Marines, Waters began writing on war and military affairs for Real Clear Politics, based in Washington, D.C. His post-war novel, River City One, was published in November 2023 by Permuted Press and distributed by Simon & Schuster. Waters currently works as an attorney and lives with his family in Sarpy County, where he was raised. John Waters, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. I, I, I really want to talk about the book, obviously. It's a, a bold, creative work, and I think it's important that we talk about that. But I also think it's really important that we talk about the person, the author, that, that wraps around it as well as perhaps within it. So let's set some context. And I, I'd like, if you would mind, if you would share just a little bit about your childhood. What stands out to you? I had a very happy childhood. I grew up in Sarpy County here in Nebraska. My mother comes from Odo County, a farming family going generations and generations back south of Nebraska City, farming people to this day, German-American people. In a strange combination, my father comes from Brooklyn and Long Island. Thereafter, his family still resides predominantly on Long Island. He came here to play football. He came to Nebraska to play football in the late 60s during the Vietnam War at a Peru State College where my mother was going to school. And they met and married, and I was born in Dodge County. My sister was born in Dodge County, and we moved to Sarpy County around the time just after I was born. And so there were two different types of vacations we took the sort of weekly vacation to my mother's parents, farm, cousins who grew up in the country, me and my sister, the city people, and then maybe a summer vacation out to Long Island to visit a totally different type of family, Irish-American, urban people. Grandfather served in World War II, very patriotic people. Um, And so there were 
two different strong influences in a way. But my childhood in between here in Nebraska was very happy and I think most heavily influenced by my older sister, uh, who's seven years older. She was a musician, a tennis player, very accomplished, more accomplished than I was in tennis specifically. And I came up and played tennis as well. And then when I was 11, she left to go to college. And uh, that was a significant memory from childhood, my sister leaving and not really recognizing how much it would change our family and how different it would be for me to be the only child in a way for the second half of growing up. But a happy childhood. I'm curious about, as you look back, how you were shaped by experiencing such diverse contexts that Eastern Coast, Irish Catholic, Brooklyn, Long Island, urban, you know, cosmopolitan context, but then also that farming context you described here. So I'm curious about that. I'm also curious about that distinction, that line that you recognize between being a household of four with you, the youngest child, and then your sister leaving and there being, as you enter your teens, as it were, that that vacuum of companionship in terms of having a sibling around you. So I'm, I'm just curious about how those contextual experiences, as you look back, shaped you. My mother was a part of a generation, I think, that moved away from the farm in pursuit of professional career. And my mother was a longtime editor at the Omaha World Herald, and she majored in journalism prior to at the University of Nebraska after transferring from Peru State. She was in pursuit of something, and that landed us in Sarpy County in a suburban neighborhood. And we were close enough to the farm where we could go back every week, weekend. I have vivid memories of my mother playing James Taylor uh, in the CD-ROM of our Volvo sedan as we drove back to the farm and spending time with my cousins who were closer to the way of life she'd grown up with than I was. And to them and to my grandparents, we were city kids, my sister and I. Not just Omaha kids, but they would throw in, oh, you guys talk fast like your dad, like your New York dad. To them, we, we represented all city things. And when we went to New York in the summers, we'd pack up our station wagon and drive across country, drive across the Brooklyn Bridge, get out to Long Island. And we were the only Nebraska people our family had ever seen. They hadn't come to Nebraska. We came to them and we represented Nebraska. We represented the West, the rest of the country. And so I guess in terms of identifying myself at that at that age, maybe bouncing between a few different types of identities, depending on what my closest family made of me. And they made up different things of us. As far as my sister, when she left, it was, um, it was a confusing thing because you don't forecast very well when you're 10 or 11. You don't understand a change, just how time moves and change happens and things are never the same. Before she left, she was like the sun. I mean, everything revolved around my sister and where she would play tennis, where she would go to college. These questions like preoccupied all of us, not just her. 
myself included, being seven years younger. I'd sleep on her floor in her bedroom and we would talk about things. I'd tell her stories about my day. She'd make sense of them for me and listen and laugh. And storytelling between us has been probably the center of our relationship, our conversations to this day. And when she left, there wasn't anyone to share these things with anymore. It was a feeling of being left behind in a way, being alone, even as a child. And you figure it out, you make friends, you find your own way as your own person, not relative to your sister. But it was something uh, I had, I've never forgotten. You also mentioned that your sister was a gifted tennis player. And you remarked that you too were a tennis player. Um, and indeed, you were a state champion tennis player. Uh, tell me a little bit more about how tennis evolved in your early life. Our, our father had been a football player and a linebacker, an undersized, uh, motivated linebacker who became a PE teacher in high school and wanted to coach and was challenged to learn how to coach tennis. And he dove into it and studied it in books and went to camps and read about it, became passionate about tennis and coached high school tennis in Fremont and was very good at it. And it was something he wanted to teach us. And he started with my sister. And they worked two, three hours a day, every day. They jumped rope, they ran sprints. And for most of my childhood, I was like a, an audience member, a spectator on this great endeavor those two had undertaken together to achieve something, to, to achieve excellence. My father had in his mind a vision of what could be always, and sports was his way, I think, of expressing that. And she really did achieve excellence. She was a top 50 player in the country. Coaches would come to our house and want to talk with her and spend the night and get to know our family. And it was a really heady thing for her, 17, 18, and me, 10, 11, and to look up and see someone kind of break out and um, win something, distinguish herself. And then she left and it became my turn to be the pupil. And I think it frustrated my father because uh, he had been at a very high elevated level of performance and he got to me and we were back to square one and it took years and lots of work um, and I didn't get quite as high as Aaron got my sister um, but tennis became kind of the cornerstone of my childhood through my teenage years I have in my mind this picture of a uh, uh, an, an edifice, a constructed edifice that, that makes up who you are and you describe tennis as a cornerstone. Uh, and I'm wondering, is that still a cornerstone for you? Yes. And it comes as a surprise sometimes. Your mind is turned toward new things, different things, breaking old attachments and finding new ones through um, painting or writing or playing instruments but I have little children now and my son in particular I teach him tennis and my dad comes and he joins and we both teach him tennis and he's eager he's a good student better than I was younger than I was and my wife I met her playing tennis we met at a tennis tournament and 
most of our early correspondence was probably about competition and about the trials of practice and trying to improve and so forth. So tennis has remained that for me. I, I would imagine that many of us contain multiple identities. Who, who we think we are, those core facets of identity. At the peak of your tennis playing when you were young, did you identify yourself as a tennis player? I am a tennis player. And did you see that being a vocation for you to pursue for your life's work? It felt that way. It felt that way in high school. And I played tennis at the Naval Academy. And I vividly remember I was entering into my last year and talking to a friend, another midshipman. And I told her, my goal for this year is to go as far as I possibly can playing tennis, to win as much as I can, play as well as I can, compete as hard as I can. And she sort of laughed at me and said, like, we've got bigger things to think about. We're about to become Marine officers and Navy officers in 2009. There's a war going on. Why are you thinking about tennis? Why is that your focus? And it's just, it was all I could it was all I could really focus on within myself at that time. That's who I was. And so, yes, realizing that aspect of me was, was very important, the most important thing. How was it that you came to be motivated, called into pursuing a military career? Happened in high school. September 11th took place. I was 14, the dean of students came over the public address system and said, a plane has collided with a tower in Manhattan. And I remember the way he said it because I don't think of one thing in motion and one thing stationary being in a collision. I think of two things moving, being in a collision. And it was such a curious thing to say. And over the months that followed, war entered the conversation for 14 and 15 year olds where I was in high school. And it entered the conversation in a way that it was something exceptional and something important. And there was for a while a spirit of 9-11 in this country where you felt a call to serve, to do something, where people felt under threat and they felt shaken. And there was an encouragement to volunteer. And so that kind of happened for me in high school. And I pursued that, not immediately. When I ended up leading Marines, I found that guys my age had just volunteered. Second Battle of Fallujah, November 2004, probably in terms of battle, the most intense point of the 20 year plus war on terror young people who graduated six months later in 2005, as I did, volunteered to go right away. And I didn't. I went to the Naval Academy and eventually entered military service in 2009. The way you reflect on that, I'm sure we all have things that we look back on life and, and wonder about what ifs and the forks in the road. Are there any aspects of these choices as you look back that you think you would do differently now? I'd do it the same. I'd do it the same. It wasn't though until I entered the Marine Corps and started meeting some 
people who had chosen differently that I fully realized I could have chosen differently. And perhaps these things that I believe about myself, say my sense of service or patriotism or desire to sacrifice for my country, maybe there were other ways I could have, I could have done this better or more. And that's what I felt like I saw in the Marines, younger guys, guys my own age who had gone directly right away. I don't mean for this question to uh, seem intended to surface trauma. What I want to ask, though, is what stands out to you from your service? The people, uh, the things you see, the things I heard, particularly young Marines. Uh, I was a Marine Corps officer. A ground intelligence officer was my designation by the Marine Corps 0203. Prior to that, I was a 0302. What does any of that mean anymore? Nothing, <laughs> by and large. Uh, but it means that I was a, first a trained infantry officer, and then I became a trained ground intelligence officer. And that basically just determines where and how you will serve. And it led me to be at an infantry battalion in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, called 1st Battalion, 6th Marines, 1-6 for short. And ultimately put me in charge or responsible for 20 to 24 infantry Marines designated as scout snipers. And they were enlisted men from PFC, private first class rank, through gunnery sergeant, ages, say, 19 through probably 35, and I was about 26. And I can vividly, vividly see each one of their faces, the way they wore their cap, their uniform, their boots, what types of boots they wore, how their voices sounded, the things that they said. They were totally unique, each one, totally individual, unlike people I had known before growing up in Omaha, I think. And they stand out for me to this day. Even though in the Marine Corps you think that you're in uniform, everyone looks the same, everyone has been conditioned to behave the same, more or less. For some strange reason, people stood out with only their name tape, the thing on their chest, to distinguish them from one another, their last name. The personality kind of leapt out of these people if you spend enough time with them. And so that's what I sort of carry around with me, I feel. We'll keep talking about the military, but, but I do want to ask that that feeling that you have there that you express about seeing the individuality, these pronounced characters that you were serving with, leading, uh, but I'm sure in many ways being inspired by. In civilian life, do, do you similarly look at people now um, either as, in, in some ways, maybe even judging them as, as being conformists, or or are you now more attuned to really seeing people as the individuals they are. There was a lesson at the end of the basic school. It's a school all officers go through on Quantico. Before you set out for infantry school or ground intelligence school, all officers go six months through the basic school. And there was a lecture one day, a young captain said, when you go out into the Marine Corps and you take charge of a platoon of 
20, 30, 40 Marines. They will all look the same, be the same ages, more or less, with the same haircut and the same training. But remember that each one of those Marines is the picture on someone's wall. The picture on some parent's wall in some town, some river city across the country, the picture above the mantle. I felt like that was a very affecting way to say, cherish these people uh, because they are special to someone, the most special thing. And you're about to go and do something uh, that could take that away. And as an officer, you will be responsible for that. So I never heard anyone say something like that before or put that much attention to an individual, at least the way it made me feel. And there was an empathy and a humanity that developed over the course of working with young Marines. They will chat, they challenge you, they stretch you, they do things that are inconceivable, that are frustrating and irritating, and yet they're yours. They're your Marines if you're a lieutenant or a captain and responsible for them. And they deepen, I think, your capacity to uh, feel for other people, Americans in this circumstance. And that empathy comes with you when you leave. You see people like that, for sure. You'll have to remind me how long you did serve in the military, but but you didn't extend that career into um, multiple decades. So I'm, I'm curious about the, the choices you made about when and why it was the right moment to depart military service? It was six years roughly in the Marine Corps, four years prior to uh, the Naval Academy. So effectively from 18 to 28, I was in uniform. I reached a point on my second deployment, which was nine months and primarily aboard a, sh a ship, a Navy ship. And we would launch off of the ship to go into different countries in the Middle East and in Europe, either to train or to respond to crisis. Ultimately, about a company-sized group of us, 100, 150 of us, flew off of Navy ships and amphibious ship into Kuwait and then from Kuwait into Baghdad to help secure the embassy complex during a period of strife. After that, I, I started to feel differently about what I was doing in the Marine Corps. Not that it was over for me, but something significant had changed from when I entered in 2009 and was highly motivated to go to Afghanistan, go to Iraq, do the mission. I had kind of felt that time had passed and that had been satisfied. And I was struggling to find a new cause within the Marine Corps to summon the same attention, dedication, and intensity. And I think if you start to lose that intensity and dedication in that field of endeavor, the Marines, the military, especially as an officer, you should consider whether it's time to change. And that happened for me after I came home the second time. There's a line in your book, River City One, from the main protagonist. And he says, whatever honor I'd won overseas made me exempt from public displays of patriotism. And so I'm 
curious if, now I've read that line back to you, if you have a, a different sense of what patriotism looks like, should look like, what it means for you to be American and, and what saying something like that actually means for you. In the Marine Corps, it was very much demonstrative. Talk didn't really impress people. You couldn't convince people of your competence or your commitment by telling them. They wanted to see you show it. And they wanted to see you show it unconditionally. That's the draw of the infantry to go all the way. The Marine Corps is the infantry at its core. And there's a power to that allure. There was for me and there is for many young men who I served with at that time. Once you complete that and you come home and you see the sort of ceremony of patriotism, the ritual of it, the pageantry of patriotism, and you experience it differently, for sure, I did at least, you're a bit questioning of it. You can see that there is an ability to be persuasive through pageantry, maybe to convince someone to do something and yeah, you have, you, I, don't want to know, I don't know if you're ambivalent, if you're of two minds about whether it's good or whether it's bad, but it feels different than it did when you were 16 or 17, inspired to serve, moved emotionally by the sound of the music or the flag. You've evolved in a way and it's more complicated. So let's talk about River City One. And it, it's just dropped, and uh, we have fresh copies sitting here on the table between us, which is which is lovely. Would you just so so? I want us to talk about that and some of the themes that occur to me. And and as a as a reader, I get the the privilege to chat with the creator and see if we can pull apart some of those themes. Would you though just give us a quick sense of? the plot, uh, the the arc of the story so that the listeners can not only get a sense of what the book's about, but also uh, hurry to their local independent bookstore to buy one. It's a post-war novel of a man who's come home from the military, who experienced war in his past. He is a family man, a professional but something about the past grips him in a way that won't allow him to live in the present. He's on the edge. And it's a question of what choices will he make and will he be able to navigate this new life he's found since returning from the military and returning from war. I, I don't think it's a surprise that the book itself isn't necessarily biographical, but certainly it, it is a part of you servicing experience and, and, and possibly making sense of of your own experiences, but also the world that you and others encounter. And so the main protagonist, uh, his name too, is is John. And it, it seemed to me that as a person, he was numbed or deadened to typical civilian experiences. He didn't seem driven by money as such or career success per se. Had a family that you mentioned, but he seemed to have become somewhat detached from the comfort that we typically might associate with family life. Um, and, and there's a scene in the book which is both amusing and in some ways um, surprising too when he makes up a fictional story in a grief support group. Um, notwithstanding, I'm sure there's plenty of trauma in his life that, that, that we know he's encountered. 
is is the protagonist's experience with that emergence back into civilian life one that you and other veterans that have read the story find recognizable? I think so. Um, a question I was asked multiple times when I came out of the military, came home, uh, was, with, was if I had killed anyone. And I wasn't offended by the question. I took it as an honest curiosity that a person who hadn't been there wondered. It's a complicated question. This isn't Napoleonic War, the shout out to a great new movie called Napoleon, which I watched, Battle of Austerlitz, very well portrayed. It's not cannonballs flying and bullets flying and point blank range. Through much of the war, people were fighting ghosts. You couldn't see anyone to explain that that question just a bit more. But what I really felt people were asking is like, what does it feel like to be in a situation of kill or be killed? If you could boil war down to something, what does it feel like to be terrified, to be anxious in that situation? What does it feel like to be intensely close with people who you may not have air support and you may not have political support, you don't have your family around you, but you have what you need. You have people with you who will do anything for you, two, three, four at a time, inches, feet, yards, going forward together. What does that feel like? I ended up needing to write the book to approximate those feelings for an audience. The feelings that went far beyond, did you kill anyone? But I felt like were what civilians, people who hadn't experienced it, were what they were asking for. You know, it was a attempt at compassion, I felt like, to ask, like, what's it like, really? And writing the book was a way to try to convey or transmit that feeling, that space, that time for someone who hadn't been there, because I think you can feel it. John Keegan, great British historian of warfare, mask of command, face of battle. He at one point said, having never experienced battle, the more I study it, the less I feel I can ever understand it. He's as good as anyone on the subject, but I disagree with the notion. I think through novels, through memoirs, people who have been there or been very, very close and around it can communicate what it feels like. And so that was a part of my mission in this novel. The philosopher thinker John Dewey uh, wrote that art is that which intensifies the sense of immediate living. And so the book contains an intrinsically creative spirit, uh, essential creative character, and that's Ruth. And, and she's an opera singer, she's a performer, and the book folds her in, as it were, to embody that spark that is so intoxicating to the protagonist John, who, as I, as you just shared, you know, somewhat numbed and and and, but also trying to recover that. So, could you talk more about that balance between those two characters? One embodying this um, frenetic aliveness, and and the other, John, who's struggling with you know feeling things. That's a great quote about what art can do. I've felt it in my own life in that it can pierce you, it can, it can open you up. And in an instant, it can change what you think or feel about an image, an idea. The day-to-day -day work life doesn't do that so much. It's not the role. Art transcends. It breaks things down. 
it opens people up. And if you have a really artistic experience and encounter where this type of energy is transferred off of a painting, a singer, a performance, whatever it is, uh, you, you, can, you can come out changed. You can come out more eyes open. It's like something like grace transfers. It lifts you up. And it was necessary, I thought, for this character who's wandering through his days, not living in the present, closed off to people because of shame. Maybe not just shame about what he saw, but what he wasn't able to do in combat. It's something people don't talk about. Most people feel like they should have done more who went. And when you come home, it's hard to, to say it. There's a feeling of guilt, personal guilt. It's difficult to even share with maybe your mother, your wife, your family. And an encounter with a strange new person who represents this, yeah, this kinetic energy of creativity and openness could jar something loose and be a pivot. And it could go good and it could go bad. Well, we'll come to the ending in a while, but um, we'll we'll leave that hanging there. Um, I wondered if there was an extract from the book that you might be interested in sharing with us as a reading. Certainly. This is a passage comes two-thirds of the way through. The protagonist is recalling a patrol. We set off single file like a group of school children walking across the playground, one right after another. It had rained the night before, so the ground was thick with mud. It felt like I was walking through peanut butter, every step sucking at the bottom of my boots. The point man had the metal detector stuck out in front of him, waving it back and forth like a flashlight in the dark. We only walked where the metal detector allowed us, each man planting his foot into the footprint of the man in front of him, and that was how it worked. One footprint at a time, hoping the ground wouldn't give out from underneath. I can't remember what I was thinking about before it happened. The weight of my pack, maybe, how it felt like carrying a limp body on my shoulders. That's how heavy the gear felt. I wasn't thinking about fighting. I was uncomfortable, but not afraid. Keep up, sir. Speed is the name of this game, was the last thing West said. We crested the hill and were approaching the plateau. Halfway to the center, there was a flash of white light, then heat, a wave of fire that burned the hair off the back of my neck. I felt something kick the side of my head, and then, all of a sudden, I'm sitting on the ground. I feel the force of the blast on every part of my body, like a punch to the head and ribs at the same time. One second passes. My first thought is, I'm dead. Another second passes. I hear rocks and debris, clumps of mud, splattering onto the ground around me. The air is reddish-brown, a fog, like I'm inside a filthy cloud, picking wet mud out of the inside of my nose and spitting it from my mouth. More seconds pass. My conscious self slams back inside my head and I realize for the first time that I'm alive. I have memory. I remember I was walking, that I'm with my team and we're near the end but we've been hit by something. More time passes. My ears are ringing and I notice that my head hurts like I haven't had a cup of coffee for the first time in months and the ache is enough to make me stretch my forehead and close my eyes. A doctor told me later that the blast from 20 pounds of explosives shattered my eardrum, but for now, I'm just drifting in and out of focus. 
I hear voices, the sounds coming from a tunnel inside of a shaft. They're getting louder as the sound expands, but still I'm staring into the fog and seeing nothing until I turn to see what's going on behind me. I'm good, I scream at the outline of a figure, sweeping my hands over my legs and in front of my face, then my chest. I'm okay, I whisper to myself. I made it. I look behind me and finally see the image of someone emerging through the fog. Hey, buddy, I made it, I call out. He's quiet, just staring, just sitting there. His back is stiff and perfectly upright, like he's just chilling. And I think to myself, hell of a time to sit around, isn't it? He's holding something in his hands, a helmet turned upside down, like a bowl with a bootlace hanging out of it, and it's odd. I push myself to my feet so that I can stand above him, and then I understand. West isn't sitting. His upper body is planted in the mud, like he's sprouting up out of the dirt, right up from his ass, and there's something black and red tucked inside the boot he's cradling in his helmet. I keep staring at the boot in his hands. My mind flips back to something I heard. Sir, my orthotics don't fit these issue boots. I'm going to need my own special pair. He was the only guy in the platoon with boots that looked like Air Jordans. It's his left foot he's holding in that helmet. The tan leather is a dark red color, but otherwise in perfect condition. The toe box and throat of the boot are plump. The laces are tied. He couldn't have been more than five feet away. I dream about it sometimes at night reaching for his tourniquet off the front right shoulder of his plate carrier, fingers dancing across the stub of his right thigh before I rip my own tourniquet off my plate carrier, fastening it across what little is left of his left leg, doing what I can to stop the bleeding. I do it right every time in my dream, but it didn't happen like that. Seconds passed, and I didn't move. More seconds passed, and I couldn't move. Eventually, the lead man in the column is there in front of me, giving the aid I plotted out in my head, but hadn't been able to deliver. Have you ever had that dream where you're playing a basketball game and you steal the ball? There's nothing but open court between me and the basket. Not a single defender stands in my way. Sometimes my legs are rubber, other nights they're wood. He bled out on the helicopter. Arteries sliced just as clean as cut grass, is what the medic told us. Said it was a victim-operated IED. Victim-operated like West had decided to kill himself when he stepped on the pressure plate, when he stepped into my footprints. We both stepped on the plate. Only West was able to operate the bomb that killed him. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. Yeah, thank you. So the book's title is River City One, and there is some explanation of, of what that means. I, I'd never heard that expression before in, in military terms. I'm sure many people are uh, aware of that, but I, I was not, and it, it gets some explanation in the book. My understanding of it is it's in some ways a reference to ceasing communications with the outside world. So as, as um, in this case, it's a, a ship is, is venturing afar. It uh, sort of severs those uh, communication connections. And as I thought about that, it became clear to me, I feel that that's how, in some ways, John was living his life, uh, the protagonist in the book. He, he had severed these connections with, uh, with the outer world. But that's how I was reading that. Um, and I have the good fortune to be with you, and, and it's your title. So how did you intend for the title to be uh, a guide, as it were, for, for the novel? River City was a phrase I first heard in Afghanistan 
and it means that an American had been killed. And someone would say River City on the radio and it would shut down communication in that circumstance such that a proper report could be filed by the command for the Marine or soldier who had been lost. And then I heard it years later on a Navy ship, Stuart, like you mentioned, in which the captain of the ship came over the address system and said, now entering River City as if it were a physical place of no communication. And then I wasn't back in Omaha, but for several months, and I came across River City Roundup, uh, which I had forgotten about in my travels. And I remember that we call ourselves River City, one of a few different nicknames in, in Omaha in town. And so all three of these things kind of came back to me in way of expressing there are probably many river cities in this country, many towns that are on a river that call themselves River City, and how you can feel isolated at the same time in your river city, isolated from friends you've left behind, from a past life maybe you've changed from or moved on from. Um, and that was the sentiment I wanted to put into the story and mark it with a title. There is a, uh, a foreword to the book uh, written by Carl Cannon, and he offers a, a passionate outcry about the nature of war, the implications of war, and how those fighting those wars often continue fighting a different kind of war when they uh, reemerge in civilian life. And as we move towards the denouement of the novel, we encounter that in, in the form of John's own trials. But suffice to say that there's, there's an element here of suicidal ideation. As someone writing this novel that so closely is a reflection and a making sense of your own experiences, how was it that you came to write about that? And I... I don't know how challenging that was for you to surface that, even though it's in a creative form. There's a point at which in writing it, it, it's out of your hands or it's out of my hands. And I don't know how far I was when it felt like it's a character who's going to encounter this question. It wasn't my question. I wasn't writing about something I had experienced in my life. By that point, it was the character, and the character was on a journey, and that journey was going to go to this place. And it's not a thing we don't speak about or see or hide anymore, suicide. I've been touched by it in friends, in family. And it got to a point in inhabiting the mind of this character in his life and seeing his decisions and feeling some of his feelings that he would confront this question. Another writer wrote to me, he wrote the, he read the book and uh, I didn't realize he had it. And he said it was almost recklessly honest. Uh, that was a, a nice phrase. I, I took that as a compliment. Uh, anything that's honest to me is, is, is good. But you reach a point where you don't look away from things that are hard. You don't look away from things your friends go through or things that have happened. You don't hide them. You confront them. And so I did in this book. Could you talk just a little bit more about being a writer and the process that you went through to actually create this 
this book? Someone had given me a book, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron. I recommend it to anyone listening. Uh, the Morning Pages is a part of that book. You sit down, stream of consciousness, and you write. Uh, someone had given me that book, maybe sensing that I had something I wanted to say that couldn't be said in a conversation or an email or a letter. And so I sat down and I started doing the morning pages one day. And I was like, I think I'm ready. To, I think I'm ready to keep going. Uh, I don't think I have a morning page. I think I have lots of pages. And it was kind of didn't stop from that. I, I sat down at my kitchen table with a pencil and a paper doing a morning page exercise and realized that I was ready to just do lots of pages. And I made time for it at night, late at night, after my house is asleep, my family is asleep, I would write by hand the story. And first write it fast to find the story. I didn't have a sort of plot structure or anything like that. I wanted to just, I was living in the moment of the story and having to figure it out as I wrote it out. And I got to the end fairly quickly and of course, that's a tiny notebook. That's not a full book. And so then it's, it's the method of going back and redoing it and redoing it and rewriting it and rethinking it and transferring it from pencil to pen and pen to Microsoft Word. Uh, and then, you know, after a couple years living with it, processing with it over and over and over again, cleaning it up, cleaning it up, you end up with something that needs to be looked at by someone else and my mother was that someone else and she put her cold scrutinizing eye to this thing and helped make it much better but there's a craft too right so there's the art but you're talking now about the craft and then there's the business the practicalities of getting it from pencil to pen to computer file but then into a printed form that is available to the world through the publishing industry. How did you go about that process of um, you know, g giving it life in book form? My mother would say things like, oh, well, you're already done. You're a writer. You've written a book. You're an author. And this is when it's in pages of Microsoft Word. <laughs> I'm like, okay, mom, no, I'm not. But that was her way, uh, as it always is, of probably challenging me <laughs> to do more or do better. And so you read the blogs and you try to sort it out about pitching agents and then getting to editors. And you are, in my case, find yourself hundreds of emails later searching for someone who will take a read. And eventually I found someone who read it, uh, an agent, and uh, she liked it, commented on it, and then said I needed to make it more thrilling. Uh, in order to be sold. And um, I knew what she meant, but I was really passionate about what I had done and I wanted it to be delivered in this form. And so I wrote another proposal, a nonfiction proposal about war. And that garnered the attention of an editor. And in meeting with that editor, we had a, a lunch in DC at an old restaurant called The Monocle. If anyone is familiar on the Senate side, and it was a very nice lunch. And he said he wanted the nonfiction book. And I said, I, I want it too, but I want you to take a look at this fiction manuscript. Just if you could. He did. He liked it. He said, I want both. And that is how the 
book became an object and not just a very, very large file on my computer. How are people responding to this? And in their responses, how is that changing your own sense of what this work is? It's amazing how little you know about what it is or what it means or how to describe it even, even though you produced it. And you're hungering. I, in my case, have had been hungering for other people to see it, read it, react to it. The more intensely, the better, positive or negative, in order for me to understand what it is and what it could mean. The highest compliment, I think, is when people make it their own and they see something of their own lives in it or it releases in them. There was a reviewer last week who told a story about his own combat deployment and something that had happened that was vague, difficult to describe, perhaps a source, a source of some guilt about being in an IED strike, coming to out of a lost consciousness and realizing that the other vehicles in his convoy had left him, feeling left behind. It's not a story that you want to come home and tell. It's not going to be on the evening news. It's not a story of heroism, but it happens. Things like that happen. And I had never heard this story before, but the writer apparently was triggered by something in the story to release that, in my story, to release his. That is a powerful thing. And there are people who are upset. There's a Vietnam veteran I've been in correspondence with now. He was he was tracking some of the reviews I noticed and commenting critically about not liking certain things about this person, this protagonist. That it not honoring what he thought was the great patriotism and service and honor, courage, commitment of people he knew who served, people he served with in Vietnam and young men he visited in Walter Reed, he said, and during the Iraq and Afghan years. And eventually we ended up in communication with one another and I asked him, please just write it, <laughs> write the negative review, 700 words, just put it out there. And he said, I don't think you want to hear that. As long as it's truthful, as you see it, I want to read it. And so he's going to do that. Um, it's fun. So I guess this, uh, if, if you do, if you are so moved, mm -hmm. uh, I would love to hear another excerpt, please. Okay. This is chapter one, the beginning of River City One. The safety was flicked off, the hammer cocked. The gun was one inch above the seam of my pants pocket. A sudden move and the thing might go off. I closed both eyes and held my breath to slow everything down, breathing only to catch my breath. It was a couple of pounds, maybe three, and I felt it hanging, the weight of bullets pressed inside the hollow grip and tugging down on the waistband of my khakis. The gun had been an accessory. A set of car keys slipped into my pocket on the way out of the house. I had taken for granted that it would follow me everywhere. Metal grooves and small notches of the grip filled with rust when chamal winds whipped sand into the air, the heavy rotations of a dust-off grinding blue skies into dust, oiling and scrubbing, oiling and scrubbing, cleaning each nook with a toothbrush to make sure the bolt didn't jam up with grit, just to make sure the thing fired when I needed it to. I carried it inside dust-filled trucks rumbling over potholes and every cut and groove in the road. I carried it standing in line for a plate of hot food, holding a plastic tray in my hands, letting my elbow rest at my hip in the small space between the hammer and sight posts. I took the gun off my hip only to clip the holster into the nylon straps of the flak jacket that covered my chest, 
setting it so high up I could rest my chin across the long steel grip and fall asleep. But there was risk in taking it off, so I took the gun with me into the green plastic porta shitters the dense sound of metal striking the soiled plastic floor when I unfastened my belt, pants sagging to my knees. When I slept, when I ate, it stayed clipped into my pants, welded to my side through so many places, I forgot it was on me until I saw somebody else's pistol lodged in a leather-strapped shoulder holster, dangling under his armpit like he was a police detective in an old movie, and it reminded me. The calm returned only when my palm grabbed onto a fistful of black grip stock. That was years ago. Today, it was new again. Thank you. I feel like I have an absurd question. And uh, we were talking earlier just about tennis and the perception as a teenager that like, this is who you are. This is, this is something that could actually fill your life in a really meaningful way. And yet here we are. And you have uh, all of these hats, uh, you've this military experience that you've shared with us, thank you, uh, this book you've written, um, you're a practicing attorney, uh, you're living in a community, contributing to that community, you're a family person. And the question that just popped into my head was, who are you? <laughs> we'll have to find out in the next book. I'll have to keep writing it and hopefully to figure it out. My mother once said, you can be everything you want in life, you just can't be it all at once. And I think that's been good advice. Was it Walt Whitman who said, we all contain the multitudes? I think that's totally true. And this country is wonderful because we can do so many different things. It's open. You can take breaks, you can make changes in your life, do different jobs, do no job for a period of time if you can. The options are out there. The story is to be written. I don't know if I can reduce it to one thing that I am. All of these things. My guest today has been all of these things and more, but they include attorney, author, and military veteran John Waters. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.